Hi, this is Dan Lett, half of the Nigan and the Lone Ranger podcast. I'm the non-Nigan part of the podcast. Just want to let you know that this is a full and unedited version of our feature interview this week with National Chief Roseanne Archibald of the Assembly of First Nations. My colleague, Nigan Sinclair, had a fascinating conversation with her, and there was so much good stuff, we wanted to make sure that you had a chance to hear the whole interview. So please enjoy. Bonjour and welcome to uh, our interview here with National Chief Roseanne Archibald. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome you to the Negon and Lone Ranger podcast. Thanks for coming on the trail. Happy to be here. <laughs> uh, I understand right now, uh, National Chief Archibald, you're coming to us from BC uh, and uh, you're on Slavatooth Nation uh, territories out there. Uh, it's such a great chance to talk to you. I know you've been very busy and on the trail doing uh, different work. For those of people who don't know, uh, uh, National Chief Archibald was formerly elected as chief of her community, uh, Tagua Tagamu Nation in 1990, uh, the first woman and youngest Anishinaabe Aski Nation Deputy Grand Chief in 1991, and then uh, the youngest Grand Chief of the Muskwegok a council in 1994. You know, uh, National Chief Archibald, there's so many firsts behind your name. I could just sort of like list all these different firsts. And of course, first female uh, National Chief of the AFN. Uh, what does it feel like to be so many firsts? It feels very normal for me now um, because it's a life path that I've been on since I was really young. And so the first, when I became the first woman and youngest chief in my community, that felt like a moment. And, and I also realized at that time that it somehow wasn't right that I was the first and youngest. Well, maybe the youngest is different, but certainly being the first woman in 1990 seemed not right. Um, and so I really became dedicated to the idea that we need more women in leadership. And so I started to follow that path and, but the path is not something that I always felt like I chose. I felt like the path in some way was choosing me as well because people would reach out to me and ask me to do these different roles. And so I never actually sort of chased down anything. I was always, um, which is very much a feminine kind of approach where you're, you're not sort of you know, out there pushing, you're more like receptive and uh, present in a moment. And I think that that has sort of led me down these many roads, where I happen to be the first and each time it was always difficult. And it's always been challenging to be the first woman. And what I learned after a few of these opportunities to create space for women is how much I needed to focus on that as a, as a, as a leader to create space for other women to be the second and the third. And then eventually my vision is that it'll just be so normal for any woman to run for any position and be uh, elected and not have this sort of special title that oh, we have a woman national chief again, or we have a woman grand chief, that it becomes very normalized. It, you know, having, of course, you know, I'm the son of Murray Sinclair, 
um, who is in so many ways the first of many things as well, too, um, namely the first Indigenous judge in Manitoba, second in Canada, and then, of course, all the other things that my father has done. One of the things that I've witnessed is when you're the first, you spend much of your career, uh, not all of it, but a great deal of it, uh, dealing with all the things that have been the reason why there you are the first, like all of the stereotypes, all of the obstacles, all of the attitudes that often were within a workplace. Uh, and so, you know, you're a woman in a historically run well, a series of them, but particularly the Assembly of First Nations, historically very male dominated. Um, have you, since your time in office, uh, been experiencing, uh, engaging, changing, challenging many of these things that have led the organization in the past to be very male dominated? Yes, the AFN has been particularly challenging for me as a leader. And I mean, I'm in my, you know, and even when I wasn't in elected leadership, I also have to let you know that I've always worked with chiefs, grand chiefs, uh, regional chiefs. I've always been, my work, my life work is around leadership and either being the leader myself or supporting leaders, giving them advice, <clears throat> excuse me. So my, my work is centered around First Nation leadership. And so in that, I am now, and I look back even to when I was a student, because that's really where it started in 1988 when I went on my first political fast to um, protest at that time changes to the education funding for First Nation students. And so, you know, we're talking about, I'm going into my 35th year of doing this work. And so each level has its own challenges, but the AFN has been particularly difficult because it is so directly connected to the colonial system. It's a real immediate interface with the federal government, the prime minister, cabinet ministers, uh, the Senate, like all of that whole colonial structure is the purpose of AFN's existence is to interface with that system. And so certainly colonialism, patriarchy, uh, all of those things have infiltrated all of our systems, but particularly it's impacted the Assembly of First Nations. So when I came in there as a regional chief, I really felt that. I felt like, wow, this system is not very welcoming to women and that there aren't enough women, there hadn't been enough women in these roles. And what were we going to do to try and change that? And so in order to really have that kind of impact, it's not enough to, for me at that time as a regional chief to say to the national chief, hey, these things have to change. You really need to be the woman in charge to enact those changes to have that authority to make those changes so some of the things that we've done that might seem maybe um not small but people might not understand the significance of them is the name change so corporately we were known as the national indian brotherhood inc which goes back to the historical ties to the national indian brotherhood which started um, around the time of the white paper and so there is some history there. At the same time, that name really signified to women, youth, 2SL, anybody who wasn't a man, that they didn't have a space in this organization. And so when we changed the name in uh, this past December 
it might feel like, oh, the name changed, but it words matter. You know, words sure, dictate yeah. the environment. Words dictate um, the atmosphere that we're in. And so changing the name is going to be a shift. Um, and there isn't, we haven't settled on the name. It's in the resolution, but I think there's still some work to do around that. And, and so that to me is a big change, even though it might seem like a small change. The other thing we did at the, at the start of this, my term is we established what's called the national caucus of women leaders. At the time we established it, we called it elected women leaders, but then we got feedback that it's really about a national caucus of women leaders, whether they're a grand chief, a chief, a counselor, um, a recognized leader in another form, um, that there was a space for them at the AFN to caucus, to come together, to talk about things that matter to them as a caucus. And so that happened really early on. We got funding for that within a few weeks of my being elected. We also established the 2SL Plus Council, which also created space for a diverse group of individuals who either had a gender identification or a sexual orientation, or, you know, it just encompasses a whole group that really hasn't been respected or acknowledged within the structure. So in this time of making these changes, it's really, that's been my focus is to come in and say, hey, you know, this organization has to change. It has to become better. It has to become healthier. It has to become inclusive. And we have to create space and mechanisms so that anybody can think, I want to work at the AFN, or I would like to be a leader at the AFN. I would like to be uh, a regional chief, or I would like to be the national chief. I'd like to be on the board. I want to be on a committee, whatever it is. I want people to feel like, hey, there's a space for me to, there's a space for my voice. And to me, that kind of corporate cultural shift is an important part of what I've been doing since I've been elected. And so, but it's been met with resistance. It's not been easy to go through these things. And I certainly have felt that, you know, I've experienced resistance at every level, but at the AFN level, it's been really, really difficult. And I have attributed to many things, but one of them is that colonial system that we're interfacing with on a daily basis. Uh, you know, I, I was talking with you just before we started the uh, recording here today about the fact that you and I both share a past in theater. And, uh, you know, we both share that kind of study of human relationships or that study of people and, and, and conflict. And it says a lot, I think, that you've spent a lot of time dealing with human conflict recently. I mean, you're right to say that there is a, uh, a lot of resistance to what shouldn't really be resisted. The idea that that women are in leadership in our communities, because if you go to the lodge and you spend time in our territories, it is the women who are keeping our communities uh, going. They're the ones who are doing, frankly, most of the work, most of the heavy lifting. And when it comes to our ceremonies, it is women who are the decision makers. They're the ones who are the grandmothers particularly, but then also other women too. I mean, the first person in my family is not my father. It is my mother. My mother is the one who makes decisions for all of us of everything from 
when we will arrive, to what we will do, to what <laughs> what food, what gifts will be presenting to the drum. Uh, so it shouldn't be resisted, but so much of your time has been spent resisting uh, or challenging some of the things that have happened within your time. Uh, I'm thinking about the suspension, the controversial suspension uh, that was covered very heavily by media. Uh, the idea that there was there's been some human resource issues at the assembly, as well as the fact that you've brought forth new plans to analyze some of the finances within the organizations. Do you find that right now in your term, there's a, a disproportionate time spent on dealing with the internal things within AFN uh, and not so much the external things? We are dealing with external things every day. It just doesn't make headlines, <laughs> Right. We, we are working every single day on every issue that's facing our people. It's just that the, the media is not interested in reporting you, on that. Do you think, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a really good point because when um, uh, I was talking with uh, Dan, the, my partner on the podcast, the Lone Ranger of the other in our title, um, w- the first thing that we were talking about is what are the approaches we're going to take with this interview. And, and he, of course, wants to talk about all the things that have been covered in the media because uh, most people probably, if they've heard about the AFN for the past year and a half, they're not hearing about some of the external stuff, which I'll ask you about in just a second, particularly around the issue of murder missing Indigenous women uh, here in Winnipeg. Uh, but most people have heard about the internal uh, conflict. Why do you think the media is so obsessed about the internal conflict at AFN and, and not so interested in some of the external stuff? There's a thing called clickbait because we're in, in a digital world where you and I talked about people don't really read newspapers anymore. They get their news uh, sources from online or through television. And so I think clickbait and stopping people so that advertisers can reach these people <laughs> is, is a part of why the media exists. Um, and it's a source of revenue for them. And so sensationalism is really what attracts people's attention. You know, they want to, they, they want the media I'm saying, or the people who own the media need revenue from, from advertisers. And how do you get people to look at that advertising while you make them stop? You make them look at something that might be more interesting. So the fact, for example, uh, we have worked on a number of issues uh, for women in the last year, we've had a number of things move forward in a good way, but the media won't won't ever really do a story on that. They'll do a story on uh, something that will make people stop whatever they're doing to read their story, to scan through all those advertisements. Well, yeah, I'm thinking about <laughs> the, the, the gathering in BC where there was the discussion around the very controversial suspension was overturned by the membership and, and so on. I mean, I'd never seen so many media at an AFN gathering other than maybe an election. It's true. Um, you know, and, and I think that it's, imp- it's important to look at this moment in history and utilize this moment for something good. So if all eyes are on me, then I want to talk about things that are important, like MMIWG, which I know we're going to talk about in a minute. I want people to understand that First Nations have really come through a history of oppression, a history of trauma, multi-generational trauma that 
is still playing out today. We're seeing the reverberations of colonialism, of those former institutions of assimilation and genocide. These things that we are coming out of and living through are so much a part of our existence um, that we, we really have to let people know that there's more to First Nations people than the stereotypes, as you said earlier, or these, you know, sensational stories that might come out. And so I'm hoping that I can use this platform to bring attention to really important issues as needed, which I do. Um, and so when we think about July, and even I noticed this in July, but I also noticed it in December, that when it comes to my speeches, the room fills up, like it goes right to the back of the room, it's full right to the rafters. But then when I finish my speech, a lot of people leave, they just leave the room and the room ends up half empty as we go through the business. Because people are, you know, and, and I think about that, I think, okay, what am I going to say in this moment to reach all of these people? And so my efforts are always about healing, that I'm trying to create a sense of um, connection between us and regular um, people that are non-Indigenous out there for them to understand us and to stand with us, to be our allies, to have empathy for us, and for us to begin to to really solve these long-standing problems that have existed for First Nations for decades and decades and decades. That's what this moment for me is about, is to make sure that the platform is used properly to advance First Nations rights, to advance and help First Nations people, to lift up women, to lift up you, to lift up 2SL, to lift up our men. I mean, I'm doing all of these changes despite real resistance in a male-dominated form. And that tells you that there are many of my brothers that I call, my fellow chiefs who are um, who are male, I think of them as my brothers, because I grew up with a lot of brothers, I grew up with six brothers. And so I think of my brothers as being many of my brothers saying, Yeah, it's time for change, it's time for us to, to move forward uh, in a good way. So a good example of that is a resolution that we passed in December, asking for more transparency around contracts, which you know, has come has become an issue in the media and is a subject of actual lawsuits right now. And that resolution said that the chiefs have a right to see those contracts and that they will get quarterly reports on those contracts. And to me, that was actually voted almost by 100% consensus. There was one person who abstained from that resolution, I believe, and didn't even go on the record. I, I don't think that they wanted to go on the record. I don't recall, but... But those kind of things are happening in a male-dominated system. So there, that means many of our brothers are standing with people outside of the brotherhood to make these changes. And it's an important time right now. And the fact that the AFN is uh, garnering a lot of attention, I think, in the long run, even though it's difficult for me as a national chief to walk through this and to know that some of the stories out there are not true or that they're slanted a certain way. I still think of the greater good of what this kind of attention can do to help First Nations to lift up our people. 
you know, I think, and I wrote about this in one of my columns is, um, uh, I think there's two ways to see the in or multiple ways to see everything, but two ways to see that particular intervention that was by the AFN Youth Council during all of that discussion around the suspension and all the other things that were uh, perhaps not looked at as much. But the when the Youth Council came up and stood up and said, we really want you to be dealing with these issues and they listed them off. And that's what I want to spend time talking about. But, but the, the focus you could take on that is, Oh, they're complaining. But the other approach that you could take is someone gave them the microphone or that someone facilitated an opportunity for the youth who we've never often heard from at the AFN or not often anyways, not enough anyways, uh, that you, that you suddenly heard the youth, a voicing that expression and someone had to make that happen. And that, that happening for the first time in many ways at the AFN means it's not just a bunch of people who are in power already. It's those who are uh, seeking to create space within that larger structure. Uh, and so I think that there's multiple ways to see this so-called conflict that's happening um, and also see it as an opportunity for that change. And then also look at the changes that are taking place within those councils. You spoke about the committees and so on. Um, I want to move on to uh, you know, the list, uh, and we don't have much time, of course, to deal with these issues in a really thorough way, um, but I can't deny that right now here on Treaty 1 territory, we have an issue with an encampment at the landfill site here in the city involving the uh, murders of two women in particular, but four by an alleged serial killer of Indigenous women uh, and girls here in Winnipeg. Uh, what is the AFN doing to deal with the issue? Of course, not just with the larger issue of murder, missing Indigenous women and girls across the country, but uh, it seems to be ground zero here in Winnipeg of the front line of the issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. Uh, is the AFN doing something about that here, intervening, supporting families here? We're particularly close on the podcast uh, with Sandra Delarond, who we've had as a guest before who's engaged the issue and, of course, works with the family, particularly of the Harris family. Uh, what's the AFN doing around this issue, particularly here in Winnipeg? I, you know, my key focus <clears throat> for the remainder of my term, I'm halfway through my term, uh, almost on today. <clears throat> and so I have a year and a half left on my term. And my key focus will be MMIWG. And as well as MMIW boys and two-spirited people, you know, like uh, it's women that are going missing, but so are our men and so are two-spirited people. And this is going to be my, my focus for the remainder of my term. It's really one of the top items that I'll be dealing with. And we know that Indigenous women are targets of a genocide. That's what the National Inquiry um, on MMIWG said they called it a genocide it is a genocide it's an ongoing genocide and so I did meet with Morgan Harris's daughters Cambria and Kira when they came I met with them privately first um, before they they took the stage and did their uh, their brave speeches about their mom and about the situation and the calls for action and so we created that space at the AFN to make sure that that happened because that, as I said earlier, this is a platform and we have to use it to bring forward the important issues. And so 
you know, I always, I always keep a vision in my mind and in my heart of our girls and women uh, being cherished, uh, loved, safe, protected and treated with dignity. Always that to me is what I walk forward with. And so we do have um, the AFN women's council is doing work on MMIWG. Uh, we're going to be reporting on that uh, a little more fulsomely in the new year. Um, but it is definitely, um, you know, and I support, I support the situation in Manitoba. You know, if any of us had our mom or our sister lying in a, a municipal dump, it would not be acceptable. It's absolutely not acceptable that that be their resting place. It, we can't, we will not allow it to happen. And it's not going to happen. And so as the national chief, I'm going to do whatever I can to support Grand Chief Merrick, who I know is, you know, doing great work in Manitoba on this issue and others in Manitoba who are, um, who are doing this work, they can count on me as the national chief to be there and to be a part of the solutions and the support that they need. And I believe that ultimately, if we are persistent and we are relentless on this issue, we will start to see the changes. So when these women are found um, and their remains are found and they're returned to their communities and they're given proper ceremony, then that will be a key point that will signify things uh, are shifting. And so I really want us to look at some of the solutions that are happening internationally. For example, in Washington state, there is a, um, a new alert system that they've recently adopted for um, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. When a woman goes missing, there's an alert system that happens. We have to start to enact these these parts of the action plan under that MMIWG report um, so that we can actually start to create this uh, safety for our women and to meet that vision where our women are lifted up in this country. And being a woman national chief and having this platform and walking through these difficulties with as much dignity and grace as I can, which is something I learned from my mom, to me is a part of that journey. I'm a small part of changing the narrative of what it means to be an indigenous woman in Canada. And I know that I, I get, you know, calls and emails and text messages. And when I meet women, they talk about what it means to see me as the national chief, as a woman, and how much that affects them and gives them hope and gives them inspiration to do something in their own lives. So I think that, you know, on MMIWG, we're going to work on the national action plan, we're going to make sure that those, those calls to for justice are answered, and that we are uh, substantially moving uh, toward that vision of safe women across Turtle Island. And you know, there's 231 calls for justice within the inquiry report. Uh, that, so the, there's a roadmap right there uh, to know what the answers are. I mean, you mentioned one, uh, just an alert system, but just some basic principles around listening to 
Indigenous women advocates when it comes to policing, when it comes to involving them. I mean, these are things in Manitoba we've known for decades. The Aboriginal Justice Inquiry talked about that decades ago. Uh, but, you know, the the idea that there are people would say there isn't or what do we do? There is a roadmap right there to be able to deal with the issue. And um, I'm glad to see the AFN dealing with it. It's it, it's a time in Manitoba, I think, that's very heartbreaking for uh, many of us who are um, losing our elders in a record rate um, in right here. But then we're also uh, many of our young relatives. Uh, and we also have to remember that. Really, this conversation around murder, missing Indigenous women and girls, which took place for decades, but really didn't take place on a national stage till Tina Fontaine, till the loss of Tina Fontaine. And uh, uh, but Tina Fontaine was also impacted by the child welfare system. And I know that the AFN is the one of the lead negotiators on the settlement for the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. Uh, it's a $40 billion settlement negotiated by uh, those at the AFN and the federal government to compensate those who have been impacted and driven into the child welfare system on First Nations children and their impacted families. Uh, do you have an update on what's happening with the AFN on that? And uh, um, what the King Human Rights Tribunal has issued some concern around the forty billion dollars is not enough. I I would agree with the um, the tribunal that forty billion is not enough, and we do have portfolio holders um, at the AFN. Just to explain to some of your listeners, the we have regional chiefs across Turtle Island. Each of the region's provinces have their own regional chief. And Manitoba's is uh, Regional Chief Cindy Woodhouse, and she is actually the person who leads the file and has been leading those negotiations on the settlement. And so I would encourage you to have just a specific show with her to talk about child welfare, because it's a very uh, large uh, issue that's very complicated. And I hope that you'll reach out to her to talk about that. One thing I can say is that we are committed to making sure that there isn't that the, the negotiations keep going despite all of these, um, you know, judicial reviews and things that are happening. Uh, that that the negotiations to ensure that people receive their settlements keeps moving ahead, and that we figure out these other pieces on the side, and so that will um, hopefully continue to roll out and we will have some kind of announcement on how that structure will unfold because now that you know we are in these judicial reviews it kind of slows down the process but we don't want the process to stop but the other thing about the the settlement itself and all of the settlements you know the 60 scoop the day scholars the uh, original IRS um, you know now the boarding school uh, settlements, the water settlements. I mean, you, we have so many class action settlements that have happened for First Nations. And a part of that is those settlements are really individual payments. So say I'm a part of a class action, I will get uh, a certain amount of money. But where these class actions really fall short is on the system change that needs to happen. And investing in those systems, investing in better water, investing in uh, programs and services for women, for example. One thing that I've advocated since I have been elected is for the establishment of a national healing fund. You know, we're dealing with generations of people who have 
intergenerational trauma. And, you know, I always talk about Dr. Pam Toulouse because she wrote about this and she said, 100% of First Nations people suffer from intergenerational trauma. 100%. Every single one of us, if we're not impacted directly by these former institutions of assimilation and genocide, you know, I don't call them Indian residential schools anymore, because no school I ever went to had a graveyard. No school I ever went to had unmarked graves with dead children in them. So these were not schools. These were these were institutions that had a specific uh, agenda to break down our societies, to break apart our families, to destroy our communities, to assimilate us, and to con conduct genocide. And so, if you didn't attend those then somebody you knew did. So I didn't attend. I was the first in my family to not attend. But my brother, who is less than a year old than me, I always call us Cree twins because we're the same age for a couple of days. Um, he went, but I didn't. And so we can all in First Nations community point to somebody in our family who has gone to one of those institutions or their parent or their grandparents. So we're all affected by this. So when we look at the social issues, the social fallout of what's happening, we need a national healing fund. We need women to understand their value. Like a part of the issue is making sure that women are supported in their healing journeys, making sure that women have that sense of their own internal value. Um, and that, when that the society itself matches that internal value, because right now there's a disconnect between the value of an indigenous woman's life versus the value of a white woman's life. There's a disconnect between the value of a, a you know, a white patient. Uh, this happened recently in the Maritimes. A woman died in the ER. She's a non-native woman versus the six people who died recently uh, from Pimichikamak. You know, there have been six deaths related to the health system recently in that community, but somehow that's not making news, you know, and it's this value, this disvaluing that has happened to especially our women, but all of us by this colonial system. And it goes back to the doctrine of discovery that somehow we were subhuman. This doctrine of discovery, we've talked about it many times. People don't understand how it is the foundation of laws. It is the foundation of philosophies. It is the foundation of social constructs across Turtle Island. And it really said that we were heathens, that we were less than human, and that we didn't have rights to our land, and that we didn't live on the land, and that the land was empty. There are so many things about the doctrine of discovery that we need to break up in people's minds. And the first thing that we need to do is rescind it. It's an old doctrine, but it's still affecting us today. But getting back to this issue that you asked me about, we need a national healing fund. We need processes that are going to rebuild our communities and rebuild our women and rebuild our youth and rebuild our men, rebuild the whole system from the ground up because it has been decimated by colonialism. I think I went on a tangent there, but I hope I answered No, I, I, I appreciated it because it actually got into my next question, but it's, I think it's important. People hear this term 40 billion when it comes to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal order. Uh, or what's been negotiated between the AFN and the federal government to compensate those who have been impacted. Um, you know, they forget that 
or perhaps it's been underreported that, you know, 20 billion of that is just to deal with infrastructure. And then 20 billion is intended to deal with literally over 100,000 impacted people, even more so. Um, and so we're, we're talking, many people have been left out of that agreement. Many people have been, uh, whether that that agreement will deal with the issues of the, in terms of the infrastructure, uh, the Human Rights Tribunal has said that that's not enough. It's not First Nations that's leading that. It's the Human Rights Tribunal. And so uh, dealing with the issue of infrastructure is what I really, I guess, want to talk about at the end. But how important it is that we deal with those issues that have been created out of Canada's violence, uh, out of the... Um, I don't know what I want to say anymore in terms of residential schools, residential institutions that lead to undermining our communities, because we're really dealing with so much of the impact of that. And that idea that Indigenous peoples don't matter um, really goes into my my own work as well. You know, people write one of the number one things people write about me is because I talk about these things and I don't talk about it in terms of, you know, flipping tables and let's go burn down some buildings. But what I say is, is let's talk about violence against Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit. Let's talk about flooding of communities. Let's talk about the ways Indigenous children have been driven into the child welfare system. And the number one thing people say is, oh, you're so angry. And really what I'm talking about is us being humans or being seen as humans. Would you want your children to be treated this way? Your sister, your auntie, your grandparent. Uh, out in New Brunswick, there is uh, a long-standing agreement between, between First Nations and New Brunswick in terms of tax sharing. And this has been uh, to try to rectify many of the issues. There's businesses or, or business that's developed on First Nations, uh, tax that's collected by the provincial government. And up until this year, uh, that, that tax was to go to First Nations, collected by the New Brunswick government, sent to those First Nations. Premier Blaine Hicks just simply cancelled the agreement a few months ago. Uh, it's been called paternalistic. He's now saying that if you want those money, you have to meet the milestones that we declare you to meet. Uh, and he's calling this an agreement. Uh, is the Does the FN have any plans on this? Or what is an ongoing kind of paternalistic treatment of First Nations governments by provinces? I actually wrote a support letter to the directly to the premier uh, and was asked to do so by the New Brunswick chiefs. And, you know, this situation really shows the lack of consultation that, and lack of respect more than anything. When you respect someone, you talk to them ahead of changes. You don't just make unilateral changes, but this is not the only conservative government that's uh, fighting first nations. And, creating processes that are disrespectful of our inherent and treaty rights. We see the Saskatchewan First Act. We've seen the act in Alberta, which I spoke to in December about. Um, and we've asked the prime minister, who has a fiduciary obligation to uh, work with First Nations. Um, they have obligations to protect our rights. And we've asked him to intervene and to be a part of the solution because, you know, provinces are a part of the constitution. First nations are mentioned in section 35, but we, what we really need moving forward is a more fulsome place within the constitution that, that deals with us in terms of our inherent and treaty rights. Why do we have to keep going to court every time we have to fight 
a provincial government or the federal government on the interpretation of what these inherent and treaty rights are. That to me is wrong. Why aren't we sitting down negotiating with the federal and provincial governments on letting them know what these rights mean and how they need to be on how they need to unfold across the country? Um, you know, right now, the federal and provincial government are negotiating on the issue of health. Um, you know, what is what's going to be the new health deal in the future? Why aren't First Nations sitting at that table? Why aren't First Nations um, having their own table, their own constitutional table annually to look at all of the the, uh, you know, the recognition of our rights, the implementation of our rights? There have been attempts, you know, by the government to do, for example, they did the uh, the inherent I think it was called the recognition uh, of inherent rights policy, or it was a piece of legislation that didn't go anywhere. But you can't dictate to First Nations. I mean, that's what uh, Premier Higgs has to know is that we're not just citizens in this country. We're not just like we have specific rights because the creator put us here. We have inherent rights. And what that means is that those rights emanate from a natural from natural laws and those natural laws come from the fact and this is a fact that we were given this land by the creator we were placed here by the creator we have obligations to take care of this land and that's been disrupted in this colonial process and provincial governments are trying to ignore this very fact the federal government timidly deals with it from time to time but we need substantial movement on these inherent and treaty rights and on the respect uh, that we deserve as first nations as the first peoples as the original governments as the original nations across turtle island and i know that that's a big a job to do and that's a big task but if we don't ever begin it, we won't ever succeed and we won't ever get anywhere. And I think that that's the next step for us is to stop looking at the cycles that we're in. So I've talked about this as well about budget cycles. So First Nations get a budget uh, from the federal government under the budgetary process. And then the next year they ask again what do you need? And then they don't give it to us. And they ask us again, what do you need? And then they don't give it to us. And they chronically have underfunded us um, for since the time of this whole country. We've never had the proper resources economically to thrive. And that's where we have to go, Negan. We have to move from being survivors to thrivers. And a big part of that is making sure that we're breaking these cycles that we're in that we, you know, one of the things I propose is we have a national prosperity table where we can begin to look at some of those economic uh, questions and solve some of those economic issues because here's what happens in a First Nation. If a First Nation has its own source revenue, they actually always reinvest in their community. They're all, they're always reinvesting in their youth. And, and their Canada. Their program. And Canada. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, this whole idea of the prosperity table is to make sure that First Nations can really be self-governing. We're never going to be self-governing if we're always telling the government what we want and them telling us 
what we don't, the, what they can't give us. We will never get to the place we need to go to if we are reliant on the budget cycles of this country. And we are entitled to a portion of the wealth that is being built on our lands. Every piece of Turtle Island is indigenous land. Every drop of water is indigenous. And we have been shut out of receiving the birthright that we have to the wealth of this country. And it has created the situations that we find ourselves in poverty, in uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women, children and welfare, um, you know, uh, addictions, mental health issues. All of these are outcroppings from this oppression and repression of our rights in this country. And that has to change. And Every day, I'm trying to think of small steps that I can take as national chief to get us moving in the right direction. I'm not willing to play the, the budget cycle game anymore. I want a prosperity table where we're going to talk about wealth sharing across Turtle Island. I, I'm not willing to write a proposal for a special healing project in in my community. I want the, the federal government to set up a multi-billion dollar, multi-year healing fund so that we can begin to address these inter, address the intergenerational trauma that exists in our community so that we can heal. And when we heal, Canada heals. And everybody gets to heal in that process. And that's how we create a better space and a better country. And I'm doing that in quotes for everyone. And how important that is that it breaks two very significant problems that are constitutionally based, as you pointed out. The first is that First Nations and provinces are seen as competitors. They're created as competitors because there's no there's no inclusion of First Nations within the Constitution. So what ends up happening is provinces act like they're competing with us for money. And then oftentimes they say, well, we don't, you know, we don't want to deal with them over here unless it comes to land and resources. Then suddenly we want to, we want you at the table. Um, and then the second is the fact that many First Nations, uh, because of health, housing, whatever our major issues, health, housing, um, all the different things that go into uh, infrastructure and so on, roads, these are all provincial designations. And as a result, we're, uh, a part of provincial visions, whether they want it or not. And so we, they should be seeing us as allies in the negotiation with the federal government when it comes to health and infrastructure and so on. But because it's this competitive environment, uh, we are using provincial resources, but oftentimes the provinces don't want to deal with, uh, don't want to deal with us. And so it creates this huge problem that constitutionally needs to be dealt with in a much more better way. And the fact is that the major investments in almost every province in this country is First Nations, because First Nations are the ones that are dedicated to the areas in which they live. We have a new urban reserve development here in Winnipeg, and it's going to be the largest infrastructure development project in Canadian history. And it's First Nations led to support everyone, Indigenous mm -hmm. and non-Indigenous peoples across the country. I have one more question for you. I know that you've been so generous with your time for today. Um, this one is not going to be easy as well, but you've come out to reject uh, the Trudeau government's uh, very controversial new federal gun control bill. Uh, you know, there are a number of gun related tragedies that happen on First Nations every single year, and particularly this year in particular, uh, that we're seeing a homicide crisis here in Winnipeg. Uh, what is the ASN, AFN stance on gun control and what's the best way to move forward with the issue of uh, making sure that there's safe ways that we can handle guns 
particularly for hunters in the in our communities? First of all, we use firearms for hunting, and it's actually a part of our food security um, and our food sovereignty. I think that's what people have to understand, that these are not just guns when they talk about guns in the traditional sense. Uh, firearms are tools for us, um, and they're not weapons. I, I think that's where there's a philosophical difference between the approach of gun legislation versus how it impacts our rights. And so for us, our rejection of certain firearms that we use for hunting, uh, we need exemptions for First Nations. You know, I grew up, um, I'm not sure if everybody else is like this, but I grew up knowing how to, sh how to fire every single gun, uh, a 22, 40-odd 6, 410 shotgun, 12-gauge. So I, you know, I know how to fire all of these big guns and I was taught how to fire them safely. I was taught their purpose. Um, you know, I grew up, um, my father was, uh, my, both my parents were hunters. And so we grew up with understanding that the gun was a tool for us to get our food, to, to have, you know, our, our, our supply and our, our freezers for the winter sometimes. And so I think that the government has to figure out how to um, respect these rights that we have because these hunting rights are actually treaty rights. They're mentioned in many of our treaties. And so you can't have a piece of legislation um, that negatively impacts th that part of our lifestyle because that is why we sign treaties. If you look at some of the dialogue that was happening during treaty signings, one of the most important things our leaders at the time said is, yeah, we can sign this document, but we have a way of living. We have a, a lifestyle. We have, you know, a way of being in this world that we want to make sure that this piece of paper doesn't negatively impact that. And so what we've seen, of course, over time is this constant chipping away at that lifestyle, this constant sort of denigration of that lifestyle. And so I think that we're going to continue to stand up for our hunters um, and, and the people who are harvesting in our communities for that fact alone. Um, but does Canada need gun control in relation to violence within uh, cities? Yeah, probably. Um, and, but that has, we have to find the way forward that it doesn't neg negatively impact us, but we want people to be safe, but we have a different view of guns. And that's what I think the general public has to understand is these are not weapons for us. They're tools. And you can't just write a legislation that's going to impact that and then never include people or never include first nations till the back end, right. Till the legislation's already written, which is the exact problem in the first place, making paternalistic decisions for first nations who are supposed to be partners in confederation, but then just declaring a law and then going, well, that's, that's, you, you just all have to accept it. That's not mm -hmm. what the treaties envisioned and particularly is a good argument for what oftentimes the Royal Commission suggested, which is to have an Indigenous parliament of some kind and and uh, or Indigenous peoples operating in collaboration, uh, First Nations, particularly with the federal government when legislation is being drafted. 
but mm-hmm. that's a much bigger issue. And I'm sure that uh, we could spend a whole bunch of time. We've already talked for almost an hour here, and I cannot tell you how much I appreciate uh, the gift of your time. And I know that you've got back to back to back to back meetings. And so you were able to sandwich us in. Um, on behalf of the uh, Negon and Lone Ranger podcast, my partner, Dan Lett, a huge miigwech to you for your time and for coming to us from all the way out there on the West Coast, uh, dealing with the time change and uh, much, much appreciation. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I did want to close out because I know that you had, um, there were a couple of things that I, I did want to circle back to. One of the things that uh, we talked about earlier is what's it like to be the first woman and I think that one of the things that I didn't really um elaborate on um is that you know this patriarchy that I'm up against and the changes that I'm trying to make um and you know I've almost sort of like have a a double uh, challenge going on. One is that I'm a woman leader and two is I'm a change maker. So change makers are often, um, have difficulties moving things forward because of resistance. And, but as a woman, also the things that I have to deal with as a woman, you know, many of the comments I've received, um, I, I say to people, you know, if I were a male national chief, you probably wouldn't say those things to me. Because, you know, um, for example, uh, how you you walk in the world, men who are sort of take charge are like, oh, that's a very, that's a good leader. A woman who's take charge is like, oh, she's aggressive. (laughs) You know, like there's this kind of attitude towards women in leadership that I think has to change. And I do believe, though, that when we you talked about this earlier about what is it like to be the first woman all the time is even though these are difficult times, Negan, I feel built for this moment. I feel like every experience I ever had at all of those four levels before I got to the national level gave me skills, gave me perseverance, gave me a sense of relentlessness, gave me a sense of energy of what I need to do in this moment. And I, I've always said this, I feel built for this moment. Um, and you know, I, when I think about patriarchy, I just wanted to find this quote really quickly because this is what I think we're up against. And, and cause I don't want to make it about men and women. Um, it was Justine Musk and I found it. And she said, the enemy of feminism isn't men, it's patriarchy and patriarchy is not men. It's a system and women can support the system of patriarchy just as men can support the fight for gender equality. So it's our brothers out there that are standing with me that are allowing me to keep moving forward. And I keep do I keep walking forward because people ask me like, how do you keep doing this despite everything that you're going through? And I keep thinking about the women and girls, especially who are ahead of me, who, and the women and girls who are watching me in communities that they know that they can survive anything, that they can keep walking, that it's worth it for them so that I can change the things that I am going through so that they don't have to go through that. 
so that they see a path, that next generation of sisters, that next generation of daughters. Um, and I want them to see that women leaders are strong and they can persevere, that we're relentless and that we can move forward and that there's a space for them and that this safe this space will be a safe space for them when they arrive. And that's why I keep moving forward is because I know there's a higher purpose of why I'm here. And I try and keep that in my work. You know, I'm going to be doing a lot of community visits in 2023. I always visit communities because I, I want to be at that local level hearing what's happening, but I am also aware of this higher purpose and higher level that I sit at and trying to bridge these gaps to make sure that my highest purpose is to create space, to create a safe space for women, for 2SL, for all of the people, uh, you know, people with disabilities. There are so many voices that we have to create space for at the AFN. And, and I just feel like the other thing I said at the AFN, um, SCA is that I used to think of myself as like this relentless, like, okay, I'm walking through really hard and I'm kind of going through these difficult moments. But then I, it came to me in an epiphany that I am actually honoring the sacred connection that I have as a woman to water and water flows no matter what. It just keeps moving. You can around stop things, water. through things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and that's what I'm doing all the time is I'm honoring that sacred relationship that I have with water by continuing to flow around these obstacles that are in my way and finding new paths and carving new places. And even if you think about a hydro dam, People think, oh, well, let's look at a big hydrogen. The water stopped. No, the water is actually moving you through the turbines underneath the ground. The water never stops moving, period. And so that's, to me, is what I'll keep doing for the rest of my term is just keep walking forward, uh, flowing around obstacles and getting to the destination of this vision of our communities being happy, healthy spaces our children are happy and healthy. We're surrounded by the love of our families living in these safe and vibrant communities. That's what I keep in my mind as I move forward. So anyways, thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk to you. Um, I really, I really appreciate your time and um, I'm looking forward to, to hearing the actual podcast when it comes out. A big miigwech to you for coming to join the Negon and Lone Ranger podcast and uh, being with our listeners from the Winnipeg Free Press. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. Miigwech. Thanks. Hi, this is Dan Lett again. You've been listening to the full and unedited interview between Negan Sinclair and uh, National Chief Roseanne Archibald of the Assembly of First Nations. We hope you've enjoyed it and that you will tune in again soon to the Negan and the Lone Ranger podcast. Thank you.